I'm Devorah Vale. I'm a life and wellness coach and the host of this podcast. Welcome to Accessing Your Best Self, a space meant for exploring the wisdom of Torah and its practical application for improving our character. Okay, so we're continuing our class this morning on the subject of anger, and we've been discussing the idea of self-regulation. We said that the greatest gift that you can teach yourself and teach your children or those around you is the ability to self-regulate. And we spoke a little bit about uh, Daniel Goleman's book about emotional quotient, EQ, and people who have EQ as opposed to IQ Um, they've done studies generally are more successful in life and part of having good EQ is being able to self-regulate having good emotional mastery over oneself and we said that you know when a person gets angry we talked all about the physiological uh, things that are going on in our bodies which make it very very difficult to control ourselves you know we're in the fight or flight mode Literally, the blood from our mind, from our brain, rushes down into our hand, arms, and our legs to ready us for a, a, a fight or to be able to run away from the danger. And this is what we experience when we are insulted, when we feel, out of, when we feel uh, frustrated, when things don't go the way we want, when somebody does something to us that we didn't appreciate, we get this physiological response that is overwhelming and our brain literally shuts down and we're ready to fight. So Daniel Goleman suggests that since this is a physiological reaction to anger, the way that we can control it is through trying to calm ourselves down physiologically, right? And we talked about different ways, taking a walk, taking a hot shower, deep breathing, you know, eating some chocolate. We said, don't get into that habit too too, uh, heavily, right? Um, uh, But there are all these ways. He he talks about meditation and prayer. Now, obviously, these are difficult to do when you're in the middle of a fight. But even the idea, he says, of distracting yourself, you know, of um, opening up a window or getting the person a drink or doing something to bring everything down and, and, and lower the intensity of the moment. And this is what he suggests. And then we started to talk last week about Susan Heitler. Susan Heitler is one of the, the experts in the world on something called conflict resolution. She's a marriage counselor. Uh, She wrote a book called The Power of Two, and she has other books that are specifically about conflict resolution. And she talks a lot about anger, too. And we were going through 11 of her um, examples of two things. First of all, this is a cognitive approach to dealing with anger, right? We said that we get angry, especially women, very often because of overload because we're doing too much, there are too many demands on us all at the same time. And a lot of times this leads to an eruption of anger. But there are many other reasons for why people get angry, right? They can feel disrespected, they can feel um, pressured with time, they could feel unsafe in some way, criticized, Different things are triggers for us, right? And we said there's trigger plus baggage is what 
creates our angry response. So um, Susan Heitler talks about what anger is hiding. That anger is, anger is not a tool that we should be using. Rather, anger is the inner teacher. Anger teaches us a lot about ourselves. What is it that makes me angry? Why do I get angry whenever that happens? What can I learn about myself? And we're not meant to use anger as a tool to get other people to be afraid of us and therefore do what we tell them to do. Anger is letting us know that there's something wrong. We said that emotion always discovers a problem. It can be sadness, it can be impatience, it can be any kind of fear, any kind of powerful emotion is there for, to help us discover that there's a problem. And we're not supposed to leave the emotion in the place of right uh, emotion. We're supposed to take it and move it up to our seicha, to our mind and say, okay, this makes me upset. This bothers me. I've discovered that, you know, this is a trigger for me. So how can I circumvent it? How can I behave differently when it happens, which in it, it inevitably will? How can I short circuit it in some way? But the other way that we were talking about last week is when I understand my own anger and the anger of others, perhaps I could be more compassionate Perhaps I could prevent it by cognitively understanding it. So we're on number six now. For those of you who want to catch the class, it's on my podcast called Accessing Your Best Self. We did one to five last week in this list, and we're going to continue this week. Okay, so another reason why people get angry or another um, manifestation of anger, number six is called displacement, displacement. And that's when we show anger to the wrong person. Now you're really angry at, you know, your husband, but you decide you're gonna let it all out on your neighbor, or you're gonna let it all out on that poor kid who just happened to walk by at the wrong time, right? I actually remember that happening to my sister when she was little, we have this story that my mother was really upset with my older brother. He was difficult. And my sister, who was the sweetest in the family, happened to walk by her at the wrong time. And she grabbed my sister's hair, which was like she had bangs down to here, which my mother detested. Okay. And she grabbed her by the bangs and said, and I hate these bangs. And she cut them. <laughs> okay. And it was like, you know, and my, this sister was the, the biggest goody-goody of the family, you know, but she just happened, Marlene's laughing, she knows her, but, you know, she just happened to be walking by at the wrong time, so that story just came to my mind, but I think that is a perfect example of this idea of displacement, okay? Can I give you another? Both side is the right word, though. It's kind of an unconscious. Pardon? What's that? You decide to take it out on someone else, but it's not a decision. It's an no, it's not a decision. It, it's an. It's just. It's just. Uh, it's just a reflex. It's a yeah. reflex. Yeah. So what happens is you'll attack the available person who's ever walking by or sitting there. Okay. And the idea of, of displacement is is. It could be that the person that I'm really angry at. I have no access to at that 
moment in time, or it's not safe to be angry at them, right? It's much safer to confront this whatever, this weaker person or this person that isn't the one who's actually causing you the grief. Or it can even be that the person isn't alive anymore, okay? But you still have this built up resentment and anger. And so you displace it and take it out on other people. So my anger is not directed to the right source, but this unfortunate person who happens to be there will become the butt of my anger. And so I get angry at them, even though they didn't do anything wrong. And again, this happens very often um, in families to family members. We do this to family members. We get off the phone, for example, Dina Schoonmaker gives the example, you know, you get off the phone with somebody who's really aggravated you. And then, you know, your three-year-old spills orange juice all over the floor, right? And so, you know, of course, your, your anger at your three-year-old is compounded by the fact that you were just in a very irritating call where you perhaps felt helpless and unable to do anything about the person who was really annoying you. It happens with a man who's angry at his boss or anybody, right? Anybody who's angry at his boss, but you know, let's say a husband who's angry at his boss and comes home and starts snapping at his wife and kids, when really the source of his anger is his boss, but he can't do anything about it, right? There's not much you can do about that. Devorah, somebody yes. who is, somebody who is um, I don't know, disrespected at home by his wife comes yeah. to like we've, I've seen so many um, principals in the public system come to work and they just lash out at everyone. And then you kind exactly. of find exactly. out that, exactly. that that's, no that's, that's exactly the scenario. Yeah. And that is tantamount to what a bully is. Right, right. Okay, so let's continue. Um, so everybody gets that. And I'm sure we've all experienced it. And maybe we've even done it ourselves. So catch yourself when you're doing this. And um, yeah, another example she gives are people who work and represent companies, you know, a telemarketing office. They're paid very little money, but they get a lot of flack for the difficult policies of the company they work for. So we go and yell at them, right? We yell at some underling. We yell at some poor secretary who's making very little money, but she gets all the anger in place of the big cheese at the top who we can't do anything about. So this is the idea of displacement, okay? Now, number seven is called displacement of topic. Displacement of topic. It's very similar to the one that we just discussed, which is displacement of person. But here it's the topic itself is not safe to be addressed. So what happens is I find a reason to be upset at you about something completely different. I'm really upset about this specific topic that comes up over and over again. But since I know that we can't discuss it, right? I'll find a different reason to be upset with you. You know, you didn't change the light bulb or you left your shoes at the front door or whatever it is. It's not really the issue, but it becomes the issue because the real issue and the real topic 
is not something that can be discussed. And I'll give you some examples of this. For example, let's say you feel you're not getting enough love or attention or respect, right? You're feeling ignored. You're feeling like you did so much for somebody and there's no reciprocation. But it's kind of embarrassing and vulnerable and hard to say this to the other party. So instead, what will, what will happen is you'll be angry about something else. Why did you come late? Why did you break that thing? So it's really about something that's more vulnerable and difficult to express. But since the topic is not a safe topic, we pick, uh, you know, um, we'll, we'll start nitpicking about something else. And Dina Schoomaker says that women tend to do this when we are insulted or hurt, or we feel that something that we care about, it has been made into something petty or small by the other person. And she gives an example of a woman in Israel who's a famous Kala teacher. She teaches new brides um, about everything they need to know about marriage. And um, she says that, you know, if there's a sticky topic in a relationship that's not easy to talk about, for example, intimacy issues, she says, uh, she gives an example. She says, a man who feels his wife is not so attracted to him or interested in him. So he becomes super critical about her housekeeping, right? Why are there always spots on the glasses? You know, why don't you put hang your coat up when you come in the house? Or, you know, you need to vacuum more often, whatever it is. The point is, is it's not really, it's not really the issue, but this is the idea of displacement of topic. It, he, he feels too vulnerable to express what's really the issue. And so he'll get angry about a lot of other things that are not really the issue. And, and obviously it's the intimacy issue that that's really bothering him. And this color teacher says this scenario comes up a lot. It comes a lo up a lot, not only in new marriages, but, you know, in old marriages, right? That intimacy can be a very hot subject. And if it, uh, you know, if it can't be discussed or dealt with, then it will come out in other ways by displacing one's anger in a different area that has nothing to do with it. Okay. Number eight is called ventilation. Another way that we express our anger. Now, ventilation is actually considered healthier than a lot of these other ways that we express anger because we're not getting angry at somebody. We're getting angry to somebody. In other words, we're telling or talking to a friend about what just happened and we're getting ourselves all riled up, retelling the incident that got us going, right? That got us hot under the collar. And in some ways, obviously, when we go over it, when we ventilate, we're getting angry because we're reliving what we just went through. And we'll tell over the story in a very animated way. And, and, and because of that, as we're talking and telling the story full of emotion, we're feeling a lot of anger again. So on the one hand, it's, it's okay 
but it's just something to be aware of that that's called ventilation. And obviously sometimes, you know, when we are angry, it's a positive way of being able to get it out of ourselves and put it out, right? When something is outside of you and you've expressed it, you can look at it more objectively. Of course, when you're talking to a friend or somebody, as we say, you know, for a positive benefit, because you want them to help you figure things out or have a different perspective on what just happened, then ventilation can be a very good way of, you know, dealing with anger. Okay, number nine, anger is an expression of frustration or task overload. So this is called anger from overwhelm. And this happens, we're talking specifically, especially about people who don't generally get angry, right? In our first class, we talked about the different types of people and which category we might be in, right? We talked about the person who gets angry every second at every moment, there's something that bothers them. This is somebody whose life is a living hell, really, um, you know? They have a term for this person, a rugzun, totally out of control. And of course, category two was people who get angry, not, you know, uh, once in a while. Um, and, um, but, and, and then we talked about people who get angry and they, they get angry uh, rarely, but when they get angry, watch out because they're never going to forget ever what you did to them right? Anyway, you can listen to that series if you, if you want to uh, review. But this is people who don't get angry often, but when they do get angry, it's from overwhelm. Anger is not necessarily hiding anything so deeply within them. It's just that they're so overloaded and overextended and frustrated. And this happens a lot with mothers of many children you don't even need many children you could have one child right we know part of the uh part of the um tikkun shall we say the repair work of being a parent is working on oneself and one's self-control that's probably the biggest tikkun of being a mother to children Interestingly, the same letters of the word tikkun are the same letters in the word tinok, which is a child, okay? Yes, and I like to say that the child who gives you the hardest run for your money is the one who's also responsible for giving you the greatest tikkun, the greatest repair work that you need to do in terms of your own self-mastery, self-control, self-esteem, right? And uh, very often, I joke that kids either a lot like you or even worse, a lot like your husband, you know, <laughs> whatever it is. But, um, but it's interesting. And I think that, you know, just from, you know, being a mother myself and for any other mothers out there and, you know, there's nothing that's more difficult than controlling yourself when you're overwhelmed, when there's a lot to do, when there's kids around who aren't necessarily listening. And that's what it's about. 
So in this case, you know, the person could say, wow, I need space. That's what's making me angry. I need space. I have this little cartoon with this um, mother holding a kid and a dog jumping on her. And it says underneath, has anybody seen my personal space? Right. Anyway, that kind of thing, right? Um, I need to delegate. I need to have less company, right? So you can, you can fix this. I need more cleaning help. I need a multivitamin, right? I need the kids to help more. I need time to myself where I do some more self-care so that I can come back to my family with energy and not feeling overloaded. And very often people who have this, they're usually disgusted by their anger after they um, explode. And this, again, is because they're not normally angry people. So they're really experiencing what we call this ego dys dystonic state, which is that wasn't me. I, I can't believe I behave that way. I can't believe that that's how I reacted. What's wrong with me? And then they beat themselves up, you know, and this obviously is not a good cycle to be to be in. And this is a kind of anger where really it just takes some planning and it just takes some figuring out how to make things more manageable if you can. Okay, number 10 is called projection. And this is when there's something about ourselves that we don't like, and we consider it objectionable. So we project it onto someone else. You know, this is kind of the idea that I've said before, when you point another finger at someone else, just realize that there's three fingers pointing back at you. So often, you know, what, when the other person really annoys or gets us upset, sometimes it's because we are projecting, we see ourselves, okay? So, so let me give you an example of this. So she gives an example of parents, her parents are coming to visit and she's not so excited about it, okay? So she says to her husband, why are you in such a bad mood about my parents coming? And of course, he's thinking, I never said anything about your parents. I never said, <laughs> who said I was upset about your parents coming, right? So she says that people get angry at others because of something that's their own issue, right? Some of you are laughing, understanding that this uh, makes sense. So the reason that I'm getting angry, actually, is because it may be just a little bit too close to home. You're upset your parents are coming, so you project it onto other people. So sometimes we get angry at others about things that's really our own issues. So this is something to be aware of in yourself, right? All of these different points that we're making are for self-knowledge. Because self-awareness and self-knowledge is the greatest gift that we can give ourselves. And as we know, right, the axiom of anger is you cannot control other people. Only one that you can control is yourself. Rhonda, do you mind muting yourself? Honey? No, I wanted to say something. Sorry. Oh, okay, um, go ahead. Yeah. I wanted to say that sometimes we're angry at somebody else and we yeah. think they're angry at us. I think that's also projection. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that's true. Why are you so angry at me? I'm not angry. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. Right. That's very interesting. I say that with my kids. You know, sometimes you'll say something to them and they'll go, stop yelling at me. And you say, I'm not yelling at you. I just told you to make your bed. 
no, you're yelling at me. No, I'm not yelling at you. I'm just, okay, now I am yelling at you. <laughs> anyway, it just escalates, right? Okay, I am angry now, you know? But, you know, it's like, no, I just asked you to do something. What? I'm not yelling. I'm using the quietest voice possible. But to them, it sounds like yelling. Right. Interesting. Very nice. Okay. Um, so if I'm getting angry in a disproportionate way, I'm angry at your selfishness. I'm angry at your negativity. But we have to be careful because it could be that what we're really angry at is our own selfishness and our own negativity. And we're merely projecting it onto others and getting angry at them instead. You know, like the kid who says, don't get it, don't, you know, you're getting angry at me. No, I'm not, I'm just telling you something, but they are, you know, it's their own, it's their own um, whatever sense of not want, well, we're gonna talk about that. So I don't wanna give that example, but. Basically, if you're getting angry in a disproportionate way, take a look back at yourself and ask yourself if there isn't maybe a schmeck of what you are seeing in the other person that's actually a projection of something that you yourself have difficulty with. Okay, number 11 is anger as per. This is a, I, I don't even know if this is a word, but this is what they said. Anger as, you know what I'm going to call it? Purposeful distraction. Okay. So this is when the person basically is saying, you know, I don't want you to know something about what's going on with me. So I'm going to get angry at you to distract you from your addressing what I'm doing. And let me give you the example. Let's say someone with an addictive behavior or someone with an immoral behavior. So, you know, let's say, you know, he walks into the house and he knows the first question his wife is going to ask him is, where were you? What were you doing? Where's the money that, uh, you know, I need to buy groceries this week? Like, uh, where's your paycheck? Where did it go? So because he knows that uh, this is the way he's going to be greeted, he walks in and explodes before she can say anything, before she can ask any of these questions. And he'll say something like, I can't believe the mess in here. Why are the windows so dirty? So this is the idea of distracting for a purpose because you don't want the other person to address certain issues about what you're doing. So Sorry, Devora, what did you yeah. call this one again? What was the phrase you said? The anger is coming. The anger is coming as a way of distracting the other person from your behavior, from being, you know, called out on something. So you circumvent it by getting angry before they can do that. Okay. I think we call it the best. Defense is a good offense. <laughs> yeah, that's that, that's true too. That's true too. So he's the one who did something wrong. And the way to deflect the attention is I'm going to distract and get angry at you before you can get angry at me. And this is a very negative way of using anger. And she says it's almost evil. Okay. 
because you're on, you're intentionally hiding, or even if it's not intentional, you can't help yourself, but continue to protect your behavior, which is not good by, you know, getting angry at the other person. So she says, you can even see it with a child, let's say, who gets in trouble at school and then comes home and starts picking on their younger brother or says to the parent, you know, you know, why didn't you get me that thing that I wanted? You know, I, I asked you to get me this color uh, notebook and you got me a different color notebook. So the idea is the anger is being displaced because really they're angry at themselves. They're angry at their own behavior. And to deflect that, they'll take it out on somebody else. Okay, so this is something that we're all capable of doing, all of these different things for different reasons. But again, these are the, this is the cognitive approach to understanding anger, not only in ourselves, but when we have other people getting angry around us, right? We can look at this list and say, hmm, what's the anger hiding? Or what's this anger all about? And the idea of this is that hopefully it will help us to be more compassionate, empathetic, understanding, but also take it to a different level, the cognitive level, as opposed to the emotional place, so that we can deal with it in a different way. Okay, so really, for those of you who weren't in the other classes, it would be great if you listened to the one before and, make, and made this a complete list and familiar, 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 familiarize yourself with the list, okay? So that you can ask yourself, why am I getting angry right now? What am I doing? What is my anger expressing? I had a, a, a situation, and I'm not going to get too specific, but you know what? I thought about it afterwards, and I realized, I, and I wrote it down because this class is making me more conscious. And that's the whole idea of muster is for us to become more conscious, more aware, not worrying about what other people are doing, but looking at our own responses and reflexes that need examination and understanding and empathy and self-compassion, right? God created us angry with angry um, tendencies. It's, it's within every human being, obviously some people more and some people less, but there is a reason that God created us this way. Because again, if we harness this anger and understand it, we can learn a lot about ourselves. So, oh, so my situation was I saw very clearly that my anger was coming from a feeling of not being respected, not feeling respected, right? Which is a very common thing. And it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, we're arrogant or, you know, how dare you not do this and this for me. But sometimes a person can do something that you just feel completely disrespected. And that itself can create a certain anger response. But when we know why we're getting angry, well, we can say, you know what? I have a need to be respected, but doesn't everybody? Don't we all? I know Rabbi Pizelik Puskin said that if you could, if, you, if, a, if people could wear a sign 
that was really expressing what they would like to say to everybody they meet, the sign would say on it, respect me, <laughs> respect me, because that's a need, a human need, right? To, to not only give respect to others, but to feel respected. And that's also part of something that's wired into the human condition. So that can be a reason for getting angry, right? So not only should we look, be looking at our own anger, what is this anger that I'm experiencing right now? What's it really expressing? What, what's it hiding? What's the trigger? What's the trigger that seems to repeat itself that gets me angry again and again? Is there any way I can circumvent it by taking the proper steps so I'm not in these kind of situations, right? And then do this with other people's anger. Your response to them will be very different if you understand where their anger is coming from. If you can say, oh, that's number seven. Oh, that's number three, right? Oh, they're doing number nine, right? So that's the idea. Okay. You can get to the deeper issue and overlook the anger. And when you know that, when you know where the person's anger is coming from, you might be able to help the person regulate, or you might be able to regulate yourself so that you don't escalate what could be, you know, an explosive situation. So you could get yourself in control and maybe even help the other person. So what happens is when we move from the regesh, from the place of emotion to the place of seichel, the idea of these cognitive tools is that you're already calming down. You're already calming yourself down by saying, hmm, I wonder which number this is. I wonder why. You know, you're being a bit of a researcher, right? An objective scientist about the, uh, you know, the science of anger. And this helps you to kind of keep yourself in check. So if you can say, wait, which of these 11 is going on right now? And this cognitive tool helps us to be inquisitive and curious, and that itself is very calming. <clears throat> What's the difference between Sometimes we feel hurt also, hurt? for the same reasons. Of course, hurt, anger very often hides hurt, sure. Right, we say hurt people, Right. What's that uh, expression from Rabbi Palkov uh, Dr. Palkovitz? Hurt people hurt people. Right? Hurt people hurt people. So hurt is a, a very big one. So the question is asked, what's the difference between frustration, anger, and annoyance? So the classic answer is that anger is usually at somebody. <clears throat> And even though they're all from the same family, right? Annoyance, frustration, irritability. No, I'm not angry. I'm just annoyed at you. No, I'm not angry. I'm just frustrated. They're all from the same family. Anger is considered the most expressive and volatile of the three. Um, so what do you do if you realize you're getting angry because of overload? Well, very simply, you need to restructure your life. Right? Anger might need that mean that you need to establish boundaries. 
Anger, it again, is the inner teacher. You, you get to know yourself, you know, you keep on stepping at this, on the same sensitive point, let's say in a relationship with somebody. So we need to communicate more about our sensitive points. You know, when you talk about A, B, or C, I know to you, it doesn't mean anything, but for me, it arouses unpleasant feelings. It's a sensitive issue with me. You know, I would appreciate if we don't talk about whatever that is, right? There's nothing wrong with that. And this comes up, especially during the first year of marriage where people don't really know each other well. But even in later stages of marriage, we get to be on autopilot. And we don't realize that we just have to restructure things sometimes. It can be very, very simple. You know, one of the great things with the coronavirus for me <clears throat> is that I created an office in one of the bedrooms upstairs, my own space. And even though I, you know, was sort of always annoyed that my husband's office is downstairs next to the kitchen and it was always seemed to be, you know, two in my fit and I was using his space. The, you know, it, it was such a simple solution. But sometimes just restructuring things just creates a whole different atmosphere. It can be as simple as that in terms of getting rid of frustration and anger. So <clears throat> this is really addressing somebody who's got a lot of overload in their life. You know, let's say you're not getting enough sleep so, and you can't afford more help and you feel there's no time for you. So a woman always has to try and find a space for herself. Um, otherwise, it's like that image that we've talked about in other classes that this Rav Blach says, that when a river flows, it's a very peaceful sight. But when the river is obstructed with a dam, the water all of a sudden is spilling all over everywhere and it looks very angry. And so in our own lives, we need to give ourselves what we need to, to bring the flow back into our life and to recognize that, you know, by having a place where we have self-expression or we do the things that we love to do, this can relieve a lot of unnecessary anger and distress and frustration in our lives. You know, it can be playing piano or knitting, reading, taking a painting class having time with friends, you know, on Zoom or going for a walk, right? Social time, these things can do miracles for, um, for making us get rid of a lot of unnecessary anger, frustration, and annoyance in our life. Okay, you know what, I'm gonna... <clears throat> Okay, a little bit of a new topic in the last 15 minutes. <clears throat> Related, of course, to anger. So a lot of the root of anger is perfectionism, right? When we want things to be perfect, we want them to be the way they should be, the way I expect them to be, the way I want them to be, and they aren't, and they fall short very common reason for getting angry. So how does a perfectionist guard themselves against anger? So Rob Orlowick, who's a master 
Mechanech, educator in Israel, says, we have to know, number one, that Hashem does not expect us to be perfect. And an, a perfectionist has to embrace their mistakes and not see mistakes as such a bad thing. Dina Schoonmaker says, Jewish women are perfectionistic. It's part of our <laughs> DNA. And we teach our children to be that way too. And she has a friend who's a professional psychologist who suggests that for the perfectionists in the crowd, it's good to sometimes make purposeful mistakes in order to teach yourself and others. So she gives an example. She says, bake a cake and over bake it. You know, make it, you know, don't take it out at the right time and serve it to your kids anyway. And teach your kids that, you know what, it's not perfect. It didn't come out perfect, but it's okay. And she says, you know, I mean, really in extreme situations, somebody who is really a crazy type A perfectionistic type, perhaps they have to go to the opposite extreme to come back to some kind of middle and create mistakes just to be able to learn that it's okay. There's nothing wrong. Things don't have to be perfect. Generally speaking, obviously, we're not looking to purposely make mistakes. But when we do make a mistake, she says, the way that we can fix this perfectionistic tendency is to realize that it's tolerable. Life goes on. Don't be so terrified by it. And maybe those mistakes balance us, help us to balance, okay, ourselves. Now, Ravolbe, who's a great Muslim master who lived in our generation and just died recently, one of the most famous rabbis who studied this development of character through Torah his entire life. He himself was a Balchuva, not born religious from Berlin, I think, originally, um, a great mind. And his son in Israel continues his work today. He says we have to be careful that when we work directly on arrogance or this perfectionism, we can destroy our self-esteem. So we have to be very careful um, when we work on it. And we can't work directly or like, like, like he says, we can become depressed. He says one, when people are successful, one of the byproducts of success is that it creates arrogance. It makes it hard for some people to focus on what's really important in life. And what happens is when we're very successful, which breeds naturally arrogance, we become more and more dependent on external validation. And we can become very superficial. And we become, like I said, more and more dependent on externals. We get affected by the kavod, by the honor that we're given for getting, for doing what we do so well. She says, no one will blame any girl for being beautiful, but sometimes, and Dina Schoonmaker works with girls. She's been working with young girls, you know, post high school for the past 30 years. So she knows the subject well. She says, no one will blame any girl for being beautiful, but sometimes you can see very clearly that their character has been affected by it. And they become much more complicated because of it. And this is because they're always getting external attention. 
right? So they can become very superficial. You know, on the other extreme, I know somebody who once said a great Rebbitson and who became a great scholar. And she said, I'm so grateful that I wasn't very pretty to look at because I knew I had to go inside. I knew I had to develop myself internally. And it's because of that, that I became who I am today, right? Because I was naturally not focused on the externals because I wasn't going to win that race. So external successes that make us shine can also breed superficiality. She tells a story about uh, a, a girl who married one of her husband's friends, uh, Dina Schoonmaker, who herself was a Balchuva. And she very, very bright. She was a doctor in medical school. And she said one of the most refreshing things that she found about, you know, the Torah and the um, people who adhere to the Torah and the, the religious community is the de-emphasis on looks and marks and the extra emphasis on character, Right? on, again, not IQ, but EQ, how you treat other people. Um, you know, that the values in the religious community can sometimes turn the values in the secular community on their head because the Torah values other things above marks and good looks, like kindness and modesty and positive speech. And these are these are areas that are open to everyone. You don't have to be rich. You don't have to be beautiful. You don't have to be tops in the class and go to Harvard. And these are the things that are valued in the, in the Jewish world and always were. But unfortunately, listen, we get affected by our, by, by our environment and by the values of other cultures that are really not Jewish values. So. Anybody, these are open to anybody. And the truth is the opposite is true too, that when a person has a moment of failure or mistake, it can lead you to anava, to humility, which is a Jewish value. I'm not perfect. And the humility can make a person more internal, more aware of what's really important. And our behaviors will be framed by doing things more the shame shamayim is the expression, not for our own self-aggrandizement, not so everybody will see my name on the building or my name up in lights or my child, the one, you know, the doctor, but rather we'll do things for a higher purpose, more the shame shamayim, which literally means for the sake of heaven. Right? Not for other people's approval, but for God's approval. And God doesn't care what our marks are or how beautiful we are. He gave us that. He gave us, we didn't do anything to get that. Okay, maybe the smart kid, you know, worked a little hard, but you know, there are people who are just smart. They don't have to do much to get those marks. Um, so again, we're not looking to fail, but when it happens, we can use it to become more internal. And instead of being mistake avoidant, we could recognize that when we do make a mistake, we should embrace it 
and realize it's an opportunity to work on humility. And of course, humility and control of anger are certainly linked because we said before, right? Anger and arrogance are partners. How dare you do this to me, right? The me is very big. God himself says, I, there's not enough room in the world for me and an arrogant person, right? There's no room for me. So arrogance and anger are partners. And humility, obviously, is a way of de-escalating that egocentricity. It's my way or the highway. It's got to be perfect because my whole sense of self is tied to this perfectionism. Rather, we want to welcome mistakes and errors and things that aren't perfect and realize these are learning moments. These are ways of integrating humility. And this way, what happens is we're asking, you know, mistakes could be an opportunity to become more humble. Have we lost her? Okay, can you hear me now? Okay, so again, yes. the idea is yes. here that um, yes, you become more humble by saying, you know what, even with my mistake, I'm uh -huh. worthy. I'm worthy in Hashem's eyes and the eyes of others, even when I make a mistake. Uh -huh. Okay, so that's the idea here. Okay, I, I um. Okay, one more idea because we have about eight minutes. Okay, so um, the next idea we want to talk about is called cognitive reframing. This is a tool that we can use to be able to deal with anger, to be able to deal with situations that normally create anger. And I'm sure you've heard cognitive flexibility is a great uh, self-regulatory thing. It's being able to be light, to be able to move and change the way you're looking at something. Instead of seeing what's wrong with the situation, ah, oh, these kids are driving me crazy. I've got to get them to school on time. I don't know about mothers worrying about that right now, but whatever it is, and they're not responding, they're not... You know, cognitive reframe, you know, I'm so fortunate that I have children, right? I'm so fortunate, you know, that they're so cute, even while they're giving me such problems. So, you know, not always easy to do, but this is the idea of it. Instead of focusing on what's wrong with my sister, she never calls me, she never, uh, she talks too much, whatever it is. Thank God I have a sister. I'm so lucky that I have a sister. Okay, so the idea is to zoom out instead of zooming in on what's wrong and make the black dot, whatever that might be, smaller than it is. You know, they give the example of a person who's looking out at beautiful scenery. And for some reason, wherever they look, there's always this like splotch that they see. And they realize that the splotch is on their glasses. Right. And if they would wipe away the glass, wipe the splotch off of their glasses, obviously they would see the same beautiful scenery that everybody else is seeing. So very often the problem is with us and the way we're looking at something. 
I'll give you a personal story that I think is very powerful, even though, you know, it's a bit transparent, but I guess that's the way I am. So uh, for many of you, you know that I went through a difficult illness many, many years ago um, as a mother of five kids. But one of the side effects of it is that later on, uh, years later, I developed lymphedema in my arm, which is a swelling of the arm that can happen um, with any kind of surgery. And just a couple of years ago, I mean, it became chronic and really horrible to the point that I, I didn't want to get out of bed in the morning to get dressed because I couldn't fit my arm into the sleeves of my clothing. And it was really depressing and demoralizing. And of course, you know, other people would say, you don't even notice it. Nobody even sees it. And whatever, it took me some time and some process to be able to just go out and get some new clothes and recognize this wasn't going to change. And I'll tell you that Hashem helped me with my cognitive reframe because one day I was in the car with my husband and the news was on. And it was during this time when I was really working through this whole sort of new self-image um, and the idea that this was not going to change. And, you know, he turned on the radio and on the radio, there was a woman who was talking about how she had been deep sea diving or snorkeling in the Bahamas in a place that was considered to be, you know, where thousands of people snorkel every year. And she had had a shark attack. A shark had attacked her. This is exactly when we turned the radio on and the shark had bitten off her arm. And the end of the newscast, this woman was literally crying and saying, thank God I'm alive. And I turned to my husband and I held up my arm and I said, thank God I have an arm and thank God it works. So I'm only telling you this story because I think it's a very powerful shift, reframe, cognitive reframe, right? It's like that famous saying, I met a man, you know, I, 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 I met a man with no shoes and I felt terrible for him until I, I, you know, met a man who had no feet, right? Or who had no legs. Or I, I had no shoes until I met a man who had no feet. So we always are able to find situations that are worse than ours. And, you know, that's not the way we want to necessarily learn things, but this is the way Hashem teaches us to be, you know, grateful for what we have. So this is the idea of cognitive reframing. I just heard an incredible story actually this week about a, a, a young uh, bar mitzvah boy in Israel. He was an orphan and very poor family. And the mother of this boy said, you know, the only thing that my son loves more than anything else is music. And what would make him so happy, especially not having a father at his own bar mitzvah, right, would be to have a really good singer come to the bar mitzvah. Anyway, she did some research and she found one of the best singers in Israel. And, you know, somebody asked him if he would come for free and sing at this boy's bar mitzvah, that it would be such a big mitzvah, and it would really, you know, make it so wonderful for, for him and the family. It would really. Okay, we're just going to finish this class with this story. 
Anyway, the singer goes to the bar mitzvah and he sings and lo and behold, right after the bar mitzvah, he gets COVID. Who does he get COVID from? He gets COVID from the bar mitzvah boy himself who ended up that he had COVID, okay? So he's really upset. I mean, not only did he get sick from doing this mitzvah, right? Which mitzvah is supposed to protect you. I mean, how can you lose doing a mitzvah? Not only does he get sick from this bar mitzvah boy, but he says he has to take two weeks off of work and lose money, the money that he would have been making by working, plus the fact that he did this bar mitzvah for free. Anyway, what happens is after these two weeks of COVID, a little bit, you know, further on in the week, he gets a call from somebody in the States and some big organization in the States is having some kind of, you know, program and they wanna bring him to be one of the singers at this program. And not only is it all expense paid, meaning they're taking care of his plane ticket, but they're gonna be paying him more money than he makes in six months in Israel, okay? But here's the end of the story. They say to him, the only way that we can have you come, however, is only if you've already had COVID. You have to already have had COVID to be able to join us here. So obviously, you know, with hindsight is 2020, right? But again, you know, to cognitive reframe when you're in the middle of. Okay, I don't know, maybe I need to move my laptop. I don't know why this is happening. But anyway, the point is, is to cognitively reframe when you're in the middle of the story, obviously, is very difficult. And again, this is part of bitachon. This is part of going back to our series on trust, that whatever God does is good for us, even if we don't see the end of the story. And, you know, that it's our choice to try to find the positive to try to find the reframe that will calm us down, that will give us perspective, that will bring us serenity and help us not to go to that place of anger and upset and frustration and perfectionism, right? To let go and let God as they say. So, okay, thank you so much for tuning in. We're gonna continue next week with more on uh, the four personality types, fire, water, earth, and air, and specifically talk about the fire personality, which is um, the part of us that um, is that part of us that gets angry. And uh, it's very interesting. So we'll, we'll learn more about that next week. So thank you for tuning in. Have a great week and feel good. Stay well. And let's hear good news. And may this pandemic end soon, and may we see better times. Thank you so much. Thank you.